Well, good morning. My name is Roger Baker, Associate Pastor, and I am glad to be with you this morning. We're going to spend most of our time this morning in Colossians chapter 3, especially verses 1 through 5, where we're going to be talking about the cure for covetousness. And it's no secret, I'm spelling it out in the title, the cure for covetousness is cherishing Christ. We'll see that in our text today. Now, last week, we we finished up the Ten Commandments, as Pastor Kelly taught us from Deuteronomy 5, regarding the tenth word, do not covet. And in, in that message, in addition to helping us understand what this commandment teaches us about God and what He requires of us in this word, Kelly really helped us to to deepen our understanding of what coveting actually is and some of the profound implications for us. And I want to take some time this morning to think together about those implications. I want to think with you about those implications this morning. You see, I think that if we begin to grasp what was taught last week, it begins to open our eyes to the implications in some incredibly practical ways. In some incredibly practical ways. I'm going to say something that might be controversial, but I would argue, I would go as far as to say that that I think we're dealing with one of the most essential and fundamental matters of the Christian faith. One of the most essential and fundamental matters of the Christian faith. Now, if you missed last week, or if you've understood coveting to simply be wanting what somebody else has, and I'll bet that sounds like an overstatement. If, if that's you, I get it, but please stay with me. Stay with me because I don't think that it's an overstatement by any stretch. I think our understanding of what coveting is and how it relates to heart idolatry has implications for understanding what it means to be a Christian. I think it has implications for understanding how we're sanctified, how we overcome sin, how we persevere, how we work through things like depression and anxiety, how we find joy and satisfaction in the Christian life. Friends, this is an enormously practical issue for a disciple of Jesus Christ. Enormously practical issue. For a disciple of Jesus Christ, we learned last week that coveting is an evil desire. Not just any desire, right? Because the desire itself isn't bad. God made us desirous and he gave us good gifts to satisfy those desires. And when we receive those gifts and give thanks to God, it glorifies him, right? Praise God. God is good. God is good. Desire itself isn't bad. But ultimately, the Lord made us to be satisfied and contented in Him. So just beyond those gifts, we're to set our gaze on Him and seek our satisfaction and our fulfillment in Him. Psalm 37, 4 says, Delight yourself in the Lord, and He'll give you the desires of your heart. Delight yourself in the Lord, and He'll give you the desires of your heart. That is, if you make the Lord the telos, the end of, the aim, the goal of your desires, if you set your satisfaction on Him, and if, if you set your affection on Him, and you keep seeking satisfaction in Him and Him alone, and if you're determined to find it there and nowhere else, then you'll truly and completely know what satisfaction is. Augustine famously said, You have made us for Yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find rest in You. You've made us for yourself, O God, and our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. Friends, we were made to have our desires fulfilled 
in the Lord. And now we're being reminded of what it is that's so serious about covetousness, right? The outward symptoms of discontent and other expressions of covetousness are simply revealing a heart that's not inclined to seek satisfaction in the Lord, but rather elsewhere. And I think that highlights an incredibly important point. If we're, if we're unable to locate our contentment in the Lord, if we're not satisfied until we have other things, if we're really disinterested in the Lord, but passionate about other things, or if we get upset and we withdraw when certain wants or needs or rights are denied of us, then, then that reveals that we might be having doubts about the goodness of God. We might be wondering if he's trustworthy, if he's really going to satisfy. Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13, the Lord is speaking through the prophet Jeremiah and he's addressing the sin of his people. And at this time, the Israelites were involved in numerous sinful pagan practices. But the Lord says, my people have committed two sins. Really, two sins? Two, yes, he takes the sum of all their rebellion and idolatry and the numerous sins that could have been listed and he boils it down to two things. He says, my people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me, number one. And they've dug for themselves their own wells, broken wells that can't hold water. This is at the heart of what makes coveting evil. The desire has become evil because in our hearts we look to the Lord we look to the fountain of living water and we come to the conclusion that, that that's just that's just not going to quench my thirst. I'm going to have to dig a different well. I'm not sure that that'll satisfy. At the level of desire, it is a rejection of the perfectly good and infinitely satisfying creator in exchange for something he created. And this is why Kelly took the time to help us last week see the relationship between the first commandment and the tenth commandment. And the Lord begins the Decalogue by saying, you shall have no other gods before me. And this means that God is the only one to be worshipped. So no other gods before me in your desires, in your affections, in your allegiances. Nothing else and no one else can be the grounds of your significance and your security and your ultimate satisfaction. You worship me alone. You trust in me alone. You be satisfied in me and to do otherwise is idolatry. Commandment number one. And the tenth commandment comes in not as a less important command, but, but actually as the same command reinforced at the heart level in the unseen realm of desire. Before it ever outwardly expresses itself in stealing or lying or murder or adultery, so listen, in case you were thinking that you could minimize, flatten, or somehow obey the other commands in some surface level or perfunctory fashion, he says, you're to have no other gods before me, even at the heart level. You are to have no other gods before me in what you desire. You are to have no other gods before me in your affections, in what satisfies you. Even where no one sees, it's not enough that you avoid the outward action. Authentic worship begins with desire because desire always has an end. It always has a telos. And the telos, what it is that I've set my affection on, what I've said is going to be my ultimate satisfaction, that is my God. 
Listen to what Martin Luther says defining adultery. He asks the question, what is it to have a God or what is one's God? The answer? To whatever we look for any good thing and for refuge in every need, that is what is meant by God. Many a person imagines that he has God and everything he needs, provided he has money and property. And the evidence for this appears when people are arrogant, secure, and proud because of such possessions, but desperate when they lack them or lose them. I repeat, to have a God means to have something on which one's heart depends ultimately. Luther goes on to say, question and explore your own heart thoroughly, and you'll find out if it embraces God alone or not. Do you have it in your heart to expect nothing but good things from God, especially when you are in trouble and in need? And does your heart, in addition, give up and forsake everything that is not God? If so, then you have the one true God. And on the other hand, is your heart attached to and does it rely on something else from which you hope to receive more good and more help than from God? When things go wrong, do you, instead of fleeing to Him, flee from Him? then you have another God, a false God, an idol. Now, I think this helps to make sense of Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5. When Jesus says, you've heard that it was said, don't commit murder, but I say to you, if you're angry, you're guilty of murder. Right? And Jesus says, you've heard, don't commit adultery, but I say to you that if you are desiring another person who is not your spouse, then you are guilty of adultery. Jesus wasn't preaching a new law or raising the bar, as some suggest. What he was doing was clarifying what God had intended all along and showing them that they had distorted and flattened the requirement of God. So what? If you could check off all of the boxes of obedience, but the whole time you really wanted to disobey. It's called legalism. The Lord's not interested in that. He's interested in your heart. And now I think this helps us to start to understand how it is that coveting is at the heart of every other sin and actually precedes all other sins. That means it comes before all other sins. So when we sin, when we transgress the law, we break commandment number one. But before we outwardly break the law and transgression, we necessarily have to inwardly break commandment number 10 in the realm of desire. Guys, you had to want it first, right? You don't do anything that you don't want to do. You might regret it instantly. You might wish that you didn't want it, but you had to want it. It had to start there. Coveting precedes and supports and sustains every other sin. So pause with me for just a moment and think about that statement and the implications. Coveting comes before and feeds and sustains every other sin. Forsaking the fountain of living water for a broken well. Exchanging satisfaction in the Creator for something He created is at the beginning of our struggles with sin. That means our struggles with sin are fundamentally a matter of worship. Our struggles with sin are fundamentally a matter of worship. When I want satisfaction or pleasure, the question is, to whom or to what will I turn? And, and when I'm hurting or suffering and I'm looking for comfort or solace, the question is, to whom or to what will I turn? Where will I bow? 
What is the telos, the end of my desire? Where are my allegiances and my affections? What do I believe I need most in that moment? What are the things and who are the people that I couldn't live without? Guys, this is where this is so practical. And I, and I want us to catch a glimpse of this before we get into our text today. Don't, don't answer these questions out loud. But think about these for just a minute here. Do you struggle with an addiction or a bad habit or a sin that you've thought of as a stronghold? Okay, do you know what you're faced with every time you're struggling? You're actually, you're actually being faced with questions about God. Every time. Every incident. You're being faced with questions about God. Like, who is God? I mean, does, does He really have the right to tell me that I can't do this? Okay? Is God good? Does He actually care about what would be good and pleasurable and satisfying for me? Can I trust Him? I mean, am I going to be disappointed if I obey God? Will living water satisfy or am I going to need to quench my thirst elsewhere? Can God meet my needs? Is Jesus sweeter than this sin? Those are the questions every time. Every time. This worship battle called covetousness or idolatry takes place in our hearts when our desires are either distorted in degree or in direction. Now, a desire gets distorted in direction when we are desiring the things that we should not. So when I want the wrong thing, when I, my desire is set on that which God has said no to, when we've set our affections on sinful things that don't please the Lord, that's a desire distorted in direction. That's easy to see. What's a little harder to see is a desire that's distorted in degree. Desires are distorted in degree when we're desiring good things too much or out of proportion. When we take good things and make them ultimate things. When an I want becomes an I need. Or when I derive my ultimate satisfaction and significance and security from someone or something else. You know what I'm talking about, don't you? We, we've, all, we've all experienced this. We want it so much that we're not sure we're going to be content without it. And the flip side of that is, I've lost my contentment in the Lord. We want it so much that I'll rationalize sinning in order to get it. That's a desire distorted in degree. Listen, friends, one of those two scenarios, one of those two scenarios, a desire distorted in degree or in direction, lurks beneath the surface when we're struggling with a pattern of sin that we can't seem to have victory over. One of those two scenarios is usually there during the times when, when we're not content in our circumstances, when we're grumbling, when we're frustrated. Leaking, lurking beneath that is a desire that's distorted in degree or direction. When we feel apathy, when you're angry, Man, you expected something and that something didn't happen and you didn't get what you want and now anger. This is often there when we're battling with things like depression or anxiety. It's not always there, but it's often the case. So, so when we consider how pervasive and how practical this issue is for all of us, that coveting is not just drooling over your neighbor's RV. 
but that it's actually a worship disorder. It's actually a worship disorder that touches every area of our lives. And we need to ask, how is the Christian to, to deal with this? Right? So if all of my sin is somehow preceded by and supported by and fed and maintained by coveting, and if it's God's will that he alone is worshipped, and if it's God's will that I'm sanctified, then, then I need to know how to do battle against coveting. Because the consequences are enormous, and I fear that far too often, please listen, I fear that far too often Christians go to war against sin with external effort, behavior modification, character development, establishing good habits, but we neglect the source of the problem. We neglect the source of the problem. You cannot fix distorted desires that come from your heart by mere human effort, and you already know this by experience. You already know this. If you love money, you will rationalize being selfish and you will call it prudent. Right? If you love sexual sin, no amount of accountability software is going to keep you away from it. You'll figure it out. If you are a slave to the approval of people, then you find yourself compromising on what pleases God in order to please people. And it makes perfect sense as long as the people are happy. Guys, we don't need a change in our behavior. We need a change in our affections and our desires that initiate and feed and sustain those behaviors. We need a cure for covetousness. Are you with me? That brings us to the premise of our message today. Because covetousness is desiring something so much that we lose our contentment in God. Our only hope for curing covetousness and all of its manifestations is to cherish Jesus Christ as far superior and to delight in him. I'm going to tell you this is good news because he's sweeter and he's better. And, and the satisfaction that is to be had in him far exceeds it. Far exceeds it. Because covetousness is desiring something so much that we lose our contentment in God. Our only hope to cure it is to cherish Jesus Please follow along while I read our text today. Colossians chapter 3, 1 through 5. Paul says, if then you've been raised with Christ, keep seeking the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Please pray with me. Lord, we are a needy people, and I am a needy preacher, and it's you that we need. God, we pray for your help this morning. Lord, would you please continue to prepare our hearts to hear from you? Lord, would you please help me to trust in the truth of your word? Would you speak? in and through me, and do good to your people, and bring glory to your name. Make clear what it is that we need to hear. You deserve the glory. You deserve our worship. The idols in our lives should be toppled over. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, as we work through our text today, if you have a a bulletin insert, you'll see these four points. I want us to see four ways that Paul teaches us to cherish Christ. And our first instruction begins in verse 1. 
And, and now we're going to spend far more time on this point than the others. So if you're getting nervous about the time, I'm going to fill up a lot of time on point one and we'll go through the last three pretty quickly today. Let's, let's take this apart. If then, if then you've been raised with Christ, keep seeking the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Paul is instructing us to desire Jesus above all. If then is a conditional statement, but it's the kind of conditional statement that implies certainty. So some of your translations might say, since then you've been raised with Christ. And that's really what the statement implies. Paul is saying, he's exhorting these Christians at Colossae. He's writing to Christians and he's saying, if you are, and you are, since you're a Christian raised up with Christ, then keep seeking the things above. He's appealing to their union in Christ. And he's saying, since you are united to Christ by faith, then you are raised up with Christ, then you ought to keep seeking the things that are above. So let, let, let's not miss this. Okay, This little statement packs a punch. Paul's going to say a lot more about this as we go along and we work through the text here this morning. But he anchors his exhortation in the reality. And that's an important word in the reality of the believer's union with Christ. This phrase that's translated raised with Christ, it comes from a word that combines the idea of, of being roused or revived, being awakened, being lifted up, combines those ideas with being in companionship with or in union with. And Paul takes that word and says, this is what's happened to you if you're a Christian. You are in company with, in union with Christ, having been raised up with Jesus to a new life. That's who you are if you're a Christian. In Christ, raised up. So, so listen to me carefully. Okay? That, that means that if, if you're trusting in Jesus this morning, that when He lived a perfect life and fully obeyed the law of God, He did that on your behalf and His righteousness is reckoned to you. And if you're trusting in Christ this morning, when he died on that cross at Calvary, he died there as your substitute. And it was your sin that he was suffering for to satisfy the wrath of God and to save you from the punishment you deserve. And if you're trusting in Christ this morning, when he was resurrected, it proved that your sin had been atoned for and that God's wrath was satisfied and that you too are raised up to a new life. Do you believe that? That's the gospel, and you must believe it in order to be saved. There is no other hope for you to be reconciled to a holy God other than for the Christ to die in your place and atone for your sin and reckon his righteousness to you. For those who do believe it, Paul says, Paul says this, it's because this is true of you, Christian, because this is true of you, because of what Christ has done, and because you are now united with Him by the power of the Holy Spirit, through the faith that He's given you, keep seeking the things above. This is who you are. Keep seeking the things above. Well, what, what are we seeking? Let's sort this out here. What are the things above? For the purposes of clarity, Paul is not just telling us to start seeking things that are better than what we used to seek. Okay? He's not instructing us to elevate our pursuits to something that's a bit more virtuous than, than they used to be. It's not simply that we used to seek wicked things and now we're supposed to seek less wicked things. 
And I'm going to I'm going to run the risk of beating a dead horse here. But here's how this might be misunderstood. Okay, somebody says somebody says I used to seek sexual immorality and promiscuity, but, but now I seek a monogamous relationship with my spouse. Or I used to seek a wild lifestyle, but now I seek being a family person and I used to seek dishonest gain, but now I seek an honest paycheck. That's fine, but that's not what Paul's talking about. That's not what Paul's talking about. When he says the things above, when Colossians 3.1 says the things above, Paul is saying, saying that which is at the top, the highest height up to the brim. It doesn't get any higher. Are you with me? When he says seek the things above, he's saying seek the highest and then he locates it for us. Where Christ is. Seek the highest where Christ is. Do you see that? Paul says at the highest, go to the top of all of the potential pursuits that you could pursue. And there's nothing higher or better or more valuable or more precious. And you know who you're going to find there? Jesus Christ. (laughs) Seek the highest, pursue the highest. And you know who you find? Jesus Christ. Sitting. That means the work of salvation is accomplished. At the right hand of God, in the position of all power and authority, he says, seek Jesus, seek Jesus and all that results from the soul satisfying relationship with him made possible by what he's done for you. There is no higher pursuit. Seek Jesus. This is Paul's instruction. Guys, don't settle for something that's a little more virtuous than the garbage you used to see. Seek the highest. And keep seeking. Keep seeking. Now, there's two very important things for us to recognize about the word that's translated seek or keep seeking, depending on the translation that that you're looking at. And the first thing for us to recognize is that the verb that's used here is a present imperative, which means it carries the idea of an ongoing action. This is why keep seeking is better. It's not a one-time event. Paul's exhortation is not seek the Lord once, never to seek Him again. It's not a one and done. It's to keep seeking in an ongoing way. Don't stop. Don't change course. Keep seeking. Keep seeking. Keep seeking. The second, and this is maybe more important, the word translated seek or keep seeking is not talking about a casual pursuit. It is not talking about a casual pursuit. It's not referring to a take it or leave it proposition as if you would be okay not finding that what you're seeking for. It's not like you're going on a walk, hoping to see a bird. You may or may not see birds. It's fine either way. I got to go for a walk. That's not what he's talking about. He's not saying be content to to not find what you're seeking for. And he's certainly not talking about something that's a drudgery that you'd rather not be seeking. So when I, when I served at, um, Carney Moving Service, occasionally we would have to, uh, somebody on the team would have to be given the task of going out in the parking lot and trying to find nails and screws because when you have a fleet of trucks, nails and screws in the tires slows you down for some reason. And and so this is a this is a worthwhile task that needs to be done on occasion. But can you imagine the just the change in countenance when you say, okay, buddy, I need you to I need you to take this magnetic roller and a broom and I need you to go spend the next four to six hours out in the parking lot 
seeking nails and screws. Keep seeking. Keep seeking. Now, I haven't encountered any of the, the wonderful co-workers that I've worked with that actually complained about it. They would go do a great job. I work for a great company. I'm willing to do that if that's what I'm told to do. But they took no pleasure in what they were seeking. Does that, does that describe your faith? Where you, you believe that Jesus is worth seeking, but you take no pleasure in seeking him? Because that ain't what Paul's talking about. That ain't what Paul's talking about. Guys, this word that's used to seek, it means to desire, actually, more clearly, to require or demand. The NIV gets this one right when it says, set your heart on things above. That is, set your desires and your affections on things above. I want it so bad, I got to have it. I want it so bad, I got to have it. This is my life. This is everything. I require it like I require food and water to survive. I demand it. I demand it not out of arrogance, but I demand it in the way that I demand to breathe. I must seek another breath or I will not go on living. It's that kind of seeking that Paul's talking about. It's that kind of seeking. And Paul says that this kind of ongoing desire for Jesus, this is what accompanies being raised with Christ. That kind of desire, that is fundamental to Christianity. That is fundamental to Christianity. Luke 18, rich young ruler approached Jesus and asked, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, Obey the commandments. Okay, in reply, young man says, Got it, check. What else? What next? Jesus says, All right, go and sell all your possessions and then come and follow me. You know what happened. He didn't do it, right? He walked away sad. The rich young ruler, he walked away sad. Why was he sad? He was sad because Jesus asked him to exchange the things of this world for Christ himself, and the young man had no desire to do so. His primary allegiance was for those things. Jesus said, this is how you inherit eternal life. You exchange your love and affection and desires that are wrapped up in the world for new desires that are wrapped up in me. Trust me, young man, you don't need that. You don't need that. You need me. But the young man didn't believe it. He loved those things. He loved them far more than he loved Christ. This is sobering because he even, from an outward appearance, he checked all the right boxes, right? All the boxes of obedience. But do you know what the problem was? He hadn't obeyed commandment number one or commandment number ten. He desired another God. He desired other things to give him satisfaction, significance, and security. Please listen. It is unchristian to be indifferent towards Jesus and not desire him. It is unchristian to be indifferent towards Jesus. And to not desire him. The new birth results in a new affection for Jesus Christ. And a new joy wrapped up in him. And a new desire that can only be satisfied by him. And this kind of desire diminishes sinful desires and kills covetousness. This kind of desire, this hungering for Christ, this setting my affection on him and pursuing him. 
to have the desires of my heart fulfilled. It's that desire that diminishes sinful desires and kills covetousness. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 13. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and hid again. And from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and he buys that field. And again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls upon finding one pearl of great price. He went and he sold all that he had and he bought it. What just happened to those guys? They didn't just escape judgment and have a sense of gratitude for that, though that's true, right? But it's so much more than that. This man has found a precious treasure and he's overjoyed. And he sees this treasure as being so valuable that he'd gladly, joyfully give up everything else to have that treasure and he doesn't even think twice about it. I'll give up everything for that. Can you picture that kind of desire? That kind of affection? To set your gaze upon something so beautiful that you don't notice other things. To want something so bad that you don't want anything else. To see something is so precious that you'd gladly give up everything that you have in order to lay hold of it. Now think about this. Think about this with me. What is it that makes heaven heaven? What's going to be sweet about that? Isn't it Jesus? Isn't it the fact that Jesus Christ is there? Jesus Christ is our inheritance. He is the reason that we will be rejoicing for all of eternity. He's the source of our joy and the focus of our worship in heaven. He will be that which satisfies us. He will be that which sustains us and gives us life. He is the treasure. He is the pearl of great price. So when Paul tells you, desire him and seek him above everything else, when he insists on us being satisfied in Christ, ultimately, he's not calling you to a consolation price. He's not calling you to second-rate satisfaction. This isn't junior varsity joy. This is the real deal. This is the real deal. Listen, I'm afraid, I'm concerned that many Christians think that seeking Jesus is less satisfying than seeking the things of the world. But they'll try it anyway, at least outwardly, because they believe that Jesus' death makes him worthy of sacrificing our joy for him. I'm going to say that again. I'm concerned that many Christians think that seeking Jesus is less satisfying than seeking the things of the world. But they're willing to do it, at least outwardly, because they believe that his death for them makes him worthy of sacrificing our joy. Now, please don't mishear me. He's worthy, amen? He's worthy of all that and more. He's worthy of whatever the cost of discipleship is. And, and I'm, not, I'm, I'm not pulling any punches. The cost of discipleship is high. It may cost you your life. It may cost you everything. And he's worthy of whatever that cost may be. But listen to me. If we're not careful, we might miss this. When we emphasize self-denial and the cost of discipleship, Jesus didn't ask us to sacrifice our joy. He asked us to maximize it in him. 
He asked us to sacrifice all that is that the man sold in order to lay hold of the treasure. Did that man lose? Did that man settle for a consolation prize? No, he got the treasure. He got the pearl of great price. It cost him everything else. But I'm telling you, he was glad to do it. He was glad to do it because Jesus is sweeter. Guys, we are actually being called to start drinking from the fountain of living water, the well that will never go dry, the bread that will never leave you hungry. We're calling, we're being called to start enjoying a foretaste of what we will be enjoying for all of eternity in heaven. If you're disinterested in Jesus, heaven's going to not be very cool because it's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Psalm 73, the psalmist says, whom have I in heaven but you? And the earth has nothing I desire beside you. Can you say that with the psalmist? Can you say what makes heaven sweet in your mind is Jesus? Can you say nothing on earth compares to you? Is Jesus your treasure? Is Jesus your treasure? Listen, the degree to which you set your affection on Christ and treasure him is the degree to which you will experience the true joy and the satisfaction that he designed you for. The degree to which you make him the telos, the end, the goal, the aim of your desires is the degree to which you'll actually be satisfied. And it's also the key it's also the key to finding free freedom from covetousness. From the power of covetousness. We must replace idolatrous desires for lesser things with desires for Jesus. You can't treasure an idol and Jesus at the same time, right? You have to stop worshiping one in order to worship the other. You can't do both at the same time. We need to determine to make him our treasure and to value him above everything and everyone else. And when you do, what you've been wanting from the world, what you've been wanting from that relationship, from that career, from that habit, from that addiction, from all those things that leave you wanting and unsatisfied at their absolute best, when you make Jesus the end of your desire, the aim, the telos, you finally begin to actually lay hold of that which you were looking for. You finally begin to experience that satisfaction. What if the next time, what if the next time you were faced with temptation to indulge in some sinful pleasure, to fall back into that habit, or get caught up in worldly things, what if, what if you were able to honestly say in that moment, I believe that Jesus is far better and far sweeter and far more valuable and far more satisfying. I tell you what, I would gladly sell everything I have, including this sinful pleasure, in order to lay hold of that treasure. There's no comparison. What if you believe that? What does this look like in practice? Let's start thinking about what this looks like in practice. Again, let me say, this is only possible for the Christian. This is only possible for the Christian, and this is only possible when the Spirit of God gives you the gift of faith to repent and believe the gospel, and He causes you to see that Jesus is the treasure worth giving everything else up for. This is a necessary precondition. This isn't self-help talk. This is satisfaction that can only be found in Jesus Christ. But for the believer, for the believer who, like all other believers... And this is important. 
is seeking Jesus alongside competing desires. That's true, amen? We, we, we haven't been free from the remnant of the flesh which wants what is contrary to the Spirit and we currently live in the tension of the already but not yet. For that believer, how is this lived out? And Paul helps us in verses 2 through 5. First, direct your thoughts to a preoccupation with Christ. He says, set your mind on things above. Set your mind on things above, not on the things that are on the earth. Now remember, we've, we've already done the work to establish that the things above are in reference to Christ and the blessings of being reconciled to God through His gospel. So Paul is saying, set your mind on Christ, not on temporary things. Set your mind on Him. And, and this is not the same as seek the things above which is a commandment uh, commanding our desires and our affections. Verse 1, when he says seek, he's commanding your desires and affections. And yes, the Bible does command your desires and affections. Verse 2 is commanding our thinking. Paul shifts gears here and he's commanding our thinking. And, And the two are closely related, but there's an important difference. Paul is telling us, direct our minds to or be preoccupied with Christ rather than becoming preoccupied with the world. Oh my goodness. How easily are we derailed and preoccupied with the world? Like 50 times a day, right? At least. I am, I am so frustrated with Uh, How fickle I can be, how easily distracted I can be, how I can get pulled right in to vain pursuits, temporary things and go, what am I doing? What am I thinking about? But God has given us a mind to be used to direct our affections and our emotions. And Paul is commanding us to live with an ongoing, intentional, mental focus on Christ. Just like the previous command, this is understood as ongoing. So he's saying, keep setting your mind on Jesus. Keep setting your mind on Jesus. Stay preoccupied with Him. Stay preoccupied with Christ and the things of Christ. When we are deliberately preoccupied with Christ and His words to us, our desires and affections are stirred by the Holy Spirit so that we see Him for the treasure that He truly is. When we are deliberately preoccupied with Christ and His word to us, our desires and affections are stirred by the Holy Spirit. So that we see him for the treasure that he truly is. Verses 3 and 4. Paul tells us to dwell on the reality of our union with Christ. You cherish Christ by dwelling on the reality of your union with him. You died with Christ. You've died with Christ. That means you've died to sin. You've died to the world. So you no longer have to be controlled by the sinful nature and by the worldly desires. Dead to those things. And your life is hidden with Christ and God. That means your life is laid up in. It's concealed in Christ. If you're a believer, that which is most real about you and most true of you is bound up in the person of Christ. We live in Christ. Christ is your life. Christ is your life. So it was His Perfect life that is your hope of being declared righteous. It is His life given as your substitute that pays for your sin. It's His life raised up from the grave that secures your new life in Him. And it's because your life is in Him that you have the assurance of a future glory along with Him when He returns. He is the grounds for our assurance. He is the grounds for our security. 
But, but more than that, to know Him is to have life. John says in John 17, 3, that, that eternal life is this, that you may know the one true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That they may know the one true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. First John, he that has the Son has life. He that does not have the Son does not have life. Is Christ your life? Is Christ your life? Or is Christ merely an accessory to your life? Is Christ your life or is Christ an addition to an accessory, an, a compartment, a part of your life? If I were to find a 12-year-old boy with a bat and a ball and a glove and tell you baseball is that kid's life, what do I mean? You know what I mean, right? You know what I mean. He's passionate about it. He's wrapped up in it. All right, and if I were to find a mom and I were to tell you her kids are her life. You know what I mean, don't you? When I say her kids are her life, I mean her kids are the driving force that motivates her to do almost everything that she does. Or if I find that dude that's working a ton of hours and I say, man, his career is his life, what do I mean? You know what I mean. Everything else takes a back seat, right? Nothing wrong with these things, is there? These are good things. Brothers and sisters, friends, if these are your life, that's a desire distorted in degree. That is covetousness and idolatry being played out in your life. Is Christ your life? Is Christ the driving force that motivates all that you do? Is Christ the one that you're passionate about? Does everything else take a back seat to Christ? That is more fundamental to Christianity than praying a prayer, walking an aisle, accepting Jesus into your heart, and even obeying the commands. That is more of what it means to be a Christian than any of those things. Is Christ your life? Finally, we cherish Christ by destroying the temptation to cherish anything above Jesus. Uh, guys like this kind of language. Put it to death. Put to death, therefore, whatever is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Now again, all of this has been anchored in our identity in Christ. And Paul has said that you died with Christ, so you died to sin, so you're dead to the world. Now consider yourself dead to those things, and when they rear their ugly heads, smoke them. Smoke them. Okay? You, you, you know what I mean when, when I say you're dead to those things. Right? You have rendered them impotent. They don't matter to you anymore. This is the command. Put it to death. Kill it. Mortify whatever belongs to the old nature. Whatever's driven by sinful desire in worldly pursuits. Kill it. Render it impotent. And it should not matter to you 
anymore. Paul gives us a list here. And we, we might be tempted to see this as a small list, but when we see that this list culminates in covetousness, we understand it to be comprehensive and apply to even the desires of my heart that are unseen. Nope. Right? Don't stop with sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire. I'm afraid you might be able to trick yourself into thinking you got it. But when we go all the way to covetousness, which is idolatry, and we understand that through the lens with which we have, I, I have defined that so far today, that it's anything else that I look for, for comfort, for solace, for satisfaction, for significance, for security, other than God, then it's covetousness and idolatry. And Paul says, when you see that sucker, kill it. Why the strong language? It sounds like urgent, warlike language. I mean, I kind of expected for change to be a little more passive. You know, Jesus would just kind of slowly chip off the rough edges over time and, and these things would sort of fade away. Now, now part of that's true. Okay, So we need to have patience with one another. And we need to recognize that sanctification is not a straight line process, right? We stumble, we struggle, we will not perfectly, progressively be sanctified, but it'll look like a jagged line with a bunch of goof-ups and struggles and brokenness along the way. Okay, There's no doubt about that. We will stumble and take steps back at times. But is this the right attitude to have about sin? Is that, is that the right attitude to have about covetousness and idolatry? I'll get around to it sometime. Not, not if we understand that what's initiating and driving our sin is a covetous desire that the Bible calls idolatry. We kill it for Christ's sake. We kill it because He's worthy of all of our worship and we make war against it because there is no way, there is no way that you can have a passive attitude towards idolatry and cherish Jesus Christ at the same time. You cannot have a passive attitude towards sinful, covetous idolatry and be cherishing Jesus Christ at the same time. Put it to death. When we allow, when we allow our hearts to safely harbor desires that are distorted in degree or in direction, we are actively working against our capacity to cherish Christ and find our satisfaction in Him. When we allow our hearts to safely harbor desires that are distorted in degree or direction, we are actively working against our capacity to cherish Christ and find our satisfaction in Him. We get that. We get that. Do you view your relationship with Christ as a personal relationship? You ought to if you're a Christian. You ought to think about it like a marriage. And if in a marriage, spouse sets their affection on somebody outside of the marriage, how do we, how do we respond to that? It's not get around to it when you feel like it, right? You kill it. You end the relationship. And to actually, to maintain it or to have a casual attitude towards it says something to your spouse that diminishes the value of your spouse and says, I'm not cherishing my spouse, right? We understand this. 
We can't allow our hearts to safely harbor those desires. But this can be a scary thing for us to do. This is a scary thing for us to actually do. Let go of what you can see with your eyes in order to lay hold of what you can only see with the eyes of faith. Intentionally kill the things that have brought you satisfaction, significance, and security in exchange for a treasure that we haven't fully realized yet. That can be scary. We can be afraid to let those things go, or we can be very sad about it, like the rich young ruler. Not sure we're going to be okay if we do that. Can I, can I invite you, please, to join in with the praises of many of God's people who agree with the psalmist in Psalm 4. You, God, you, God, have put gladness in my heart more than when their grain and their new wine abound. More than when their grain and their new wine abound. The joy of delighting in Christ far exceeds the temporary joy of prosperity and satisfaction in the world. I know it's scary. I know it's scary. But there is no pleasure that can compare to this treasure. And those who put their hope in Him will not be disappointed. Those who put their hope in Him will not be disappointed. I'm going to put up some questions for reflection. And we're going to take about two minutes to ponder some questions. And then I'm going to close this with a time of prayer. And then a benediction. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are perfect in every way. You are eternal, infinite, and unchangeable in your power and perfection, your goodness and glory, wisdom, justice, and truth. There is none like you. Lord, we know. We know that you've made us for yourself. We know that our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. And Lord, we confess our propensity to turn to other things, to prize other things ahead of you, to set our hearts and to set our minds on things that don't satisfy. Lord, too often we dig broken wells that don't hold water. Oh God, help us. Lord, help us to be set free from.
from the grip of covetousness and all of its outward manifestations by changing the affections of our heart. Lord, would you help us to see you clearly? Help us to see that you are the treasure worth giving everything else up for. Help us to see that you are God and you are good and we can trust you. And Lord, give us faith to remember that you put more joy in our hearts than any temporary earthly prosperity or pleasure. And Lord, that when we put our hope in you, we won't be disappointed. God, I want to pray that if there are any here today who have not known you and have not been satisfied, Lord, that they would turn to you. God, that they would see their need for forgiveness, that they would put their trust in you and what you did for them on the cross. And Lord, that they would find the longings of their heart fulfilled in you for the first time. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. invite you to stand. Uh, let's suppose that you're the one that found the treasure. Let's suppose that uh, you stumbled into the field and you found this enormous treasure and it's more than you could spend in your lifetime. And the Lord says, I want you to share that treasure. Wouldn't you call to your family? Wouldn't you call to your friends? Wouldn't you say, guys, look what I have found. Look at the treasure. Look at the pearl of great price. Guys, you have been given treasure. You have been given living water. His name is Jesus. When we go out this week, let's be eager to hold him out to a world who desperately needs Jesus, who desperately needs to have their satisfaction met in him and him alone. Have a good week.